The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, from chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits and they were all healed. So reads the word of God. Let's pray shall we? Merciful and gracious God open our eyes that we may see glorious things in your word. And direct us and teach us, shape our lives, shape our hearts and our emotions so that we may live in such a way that we truly display the Christ-likeness that you've called us to as we seek the growth of his kingdom of which we're privileged to be citizens. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And let me welcome you again, particularly if you are uh, visiting us today, this is your first time with us. I've already said hi to a few guests and visitors. It's great to have you with us. We're so glad you could join us. And you've picked a great day because we have a reception, as uh, you'll have heard earlier. Uh, we have a reception after worship uh, to give us a chance to send off those 101 people. My goodness, what a big day. As 101 of our number prepare to set sail for Pastors New with the launch of Christ Covenant Church in Granbury. This is a first for us as a church. Uh, you probably know that your pastors have been involved in numerous church plants in the past in various contexts, pastoring them, and advising them and so on. But this is the first time in the history of all saints that we've sent out a church from here. God be praised. This tremendously exciting opportunity. And of course, at the same time, I, I've heard the word bittersweet about four or five times and counting already this morning. It's tough, isn't it? And, um, you know, we, it's not a wrong thing to uh, face our emotions as we anticipate, well, there's the practical challenges. Those guys who've been involved so far in the planning of uh, Christ Covenant will know about some of those, but the relational costs as well. Um, those 101 people saying, uh, if not goodbye, at least au revoir, to a couple of hundred and something of their friends, and us who remain here saying goodbye to those 101 people as they head down there. It's, 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 we want to keep it in perspective, don't we? I mean, it's Granbury, not Mogadishu. Um, many of you will receive the um, Standing in the Gap prayer letter uh, every month that's uh, circulated among CREC churches and, and others. Um, and that puts it in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, there was, uh, I was looking through it just a few days ago. Uh, I saw the news that a couple of months back, the last of the 121 Christian hostages who were taken by Muslim extremists from a school in Nigeria have finally been reunited with their family. And you go down the list of um, Sudan and Pakistan and Iran and the Philippines and China where churches are burned and Christians are assaulted or murdered and evangelists are imprisoned like we yeah so this is tough but it's not tough like that <laughs> at the same time uh, relational costs are real costs and uh, this is an appropriate moment I think I mean 
I look around, seeing if I can see any tears yet. There were a few last week, weren't there? Uh, Pastor Neil preached his final sermon here as one of our pastors before departing. Please don't start now because you'll start me off. (laughs) And maybe there'll be some tears later in the reception as um, uh, we are going to see less of some of our close friends and uh, our beloved pastor. I don't know of a more beloved pastor than Pastor Neil. I know quite a lot of pastors. It's one of the things you get to know in my business, I suppose. But uh, I don't know many who are more deeply and rightly, justly loved than your pastor, and from time to time, mine, Pastor Neil. So with his wife, Denise, they're going to be heading down southwest. And I want today to help us all to see these real, though light and momentary, emotional challenges in the appropriate biblical context. There is a right biblical context for looking at it, and today I want to set it out for you so we can understand why we're doing what we're doing in saying goodbye to some of our friends as they head down to Granbury. Um, I want to lead off with an extract from Pastor Neil's formal proposal, which he submitted to the session and has also been submitted to the uh, CREC Church Planting Network uh, for financial support, uh, setting out the vision for what those 101 people are going to be doing, and what we are seeking to do here as a church community in in sending these people out. Quote, in accordance with the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ, writes Pastor Neil, to build his church, All Saints Presbyterian Church of Fort Worth, Texas, is sponsoring its first church plant in Granbury, Texas. It continues, All Saints has a vision to plant multiple churches in the Dallas-Fort Worth metroplex, seeing the DFW area as a ripe mission field for planting. We envisage, quote, a group of churches that cooperate in concert together as like-minded co-laboring congregations seeking to build the kingdom of Christ together in the DFW metroplex, end of quote. I think that's a crisply and richly articulated vision. And I want to draw your attention to a phrase right at the end of what I read, which embodies a crucial insight. We're seeking, quote, to build the kingdom of Christ, unquote. And here's the key thing. The character of the kingdom of Christ mirrors the character of the ministry of Christ himself. It's Christ's kingdom, isn't it? The book of Acts is Christ continuing to build his kingdom. It's an open-ended book. He's continuing to do so through us, and he's carrying on as he began. The kingdom of Christ reflects his character and, and the shape of his own life. And you know what the shape of his life was like. Christ's conquest reflects a pattern of death and resurrection. Or more precisely, actually, Death as the path to resurrection, or resurrection that comes from death, death that leads to resurrection. Think of how Jesus' ministry is described again and again and again and again in the Bible. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2.9. Why? Because of his suffering. 
Or again, Acts 2.36, it is the crucified Jesus who has been made Lord and Christ. There's no other Jesus than the crucified one who has been exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the Savior of the world. Christ will draw all men to himself, John 12, 32. How will he do it? Well, by being lifted up, which of course is John's wonderful double meaning. It's lifted up, exalted, lifted up in death on the cross. Isaiah 53, verse 12. He shall divide the spoil with the strong there on the victory field, the battlefield of victory. Why will he do that? Because he poured out his soul to death. Think of Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus quoted from the cross as he was being crucified. And don't we all want to get to the end of Psalm 22? The end of Psalm 22, which proclaims, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Don't we want to see that? Isn't that what we want to experience in Fort Worth and Granbury and everywhere else we know? And the only way to the end of Psalm 22 is through the beginning of Psalm 22, which begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you see The whole shape of Jesus' life is this path of suffering and hardship and trial as the path to exaltation, death and resurrection. And of course, that same principle is applied explicitly to the church multiple times, even by Jesus himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We could just stop there, couldn't we? All you need to know is that we need to take up the same cross that Jesus took up. John 12, 24. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much much fruit. So all you need to do is die, which is to say, all you need to do is lay down your life. Isn't it a troubling thought, really? If we make comfort our goal, we are lost. If we make comfort our goal, we will be miserable. If we make comfort our goal, we'll be frustrated and divided and helpless and hopeless. But if we make sacrifice our goal, which is to say, if we make Christ-likeness our goal, we can't lose. Even when we lose, we can't lose. Because all you've got to do is die. And let me tell you, all of us are going to do that. In many ways, there are many kinds of mini-deaths along the path to glory. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said, because they'll be comforted. You can, I'm not going to multiply the Bible verses. We'll be stuck in the introduction of this sermon at lunchtime, and that wouldn't be good for any of us. And so one reason why this is so important is because it, it gives us a framework for, for finding the encouragement of the Scriptures which we're going to need. We here, we remain at All Saints in a smaller church after our friends have headed down the road, and you guys who go to a much smaller church uh, meeting in Granbury. And to that end, I want to turn your attention to the text that I read a few minutes ago, Acts chapter 5. You know the story of the book of Acts, even if you've not been here following along with us as we've been working through this book. You know the book of Acts tells a story of the uh, early days of the Christian church, the wonderful growth they experienced. They had various problems along the way. We've seen some of those, the opposition in chapters 3 and 4, Uh, There's the Ananias and Sapphira episode in chapter 5, which we'll come to in a few minutes' time. And what happens? Uh, Here in these verses, you get one of a number of pauses in the narrative, where it's as though the the narrator, Luke, stands still and steps back a little and just talks more broadly and more generally about what's, what's been happening. 
And during this little pause, he has this little statement. Look with me at verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. This is one of the many, the church is growing statements in the book. And what it gives us the opportunity to do is to see how. What's had to happen in order for the kingdom to grow? We kind of know, yes, it's death and resurrection. We know that already. But can we get more granular? What kind of death must we be ready to die? And what kind of life, resurrection, might we expect and anticipate to experience as a consequence? And there are two answers in this. I want to spend most of our time on the first one. Um, There are two ways in which the kingdom is said to grow here. The first, we'll take most of our time this morning, the kingdom of Christ grows as the church remains faithful through trials. Trials are not an incidental or non-essential feature of the church's life. Trials are constitutive of the path we must walk. And the book of Acts highlights this again and again and again. Um, You actually see it. I I want to come back to this text in a few minutes, but first I want to show you in the overall shape of the book of Acts, the the book of Acts has a number of different structures that permeate it, and one of those structures highlights this, this feature that... Uh, trials are part of how the churches grow. And this, this structure blew my mind because it's not a chiasm. Like I had to pinch myself, like, really, what's going on? But it's, it's true, it's really there. Basically, what happens is, you know you've got the theme verse at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 8, you'll be my witnesses in uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, the gospel spreads out. And what happens is you get these periodic um, markers like this one, which indicate the church is growing. And each time, what happens is absolutely identical every single time. You have some problem, some trial, some hardship that needs to be overcome. And then the solution is found in God's goodness and providence, and then you get a little statement that says the church grows. Let me show you a few, and this will illuminate for us the kinds of trials we might expect to experience. So the first trial, of course, is right at the beginning of the book, chapters 1 and 2. They've lost an apostle, Judas, And Christ has ascended and left them, abandoned them, seemingly, without him. That's the problem. And the solution that's found, of course, is the gift of the Spirit in uh, Acts chapter 2. And at the end of that gift, the presence of Christ is now among his church, with his people, by his Spirit. And so you get the the growth statement, chapter 2, verse 47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. You see? Problem, solution, growth statement. Second one. Well, it's in chapter 4. Chapter 3 and 4, you've got opposition. That's another type of problem you might experience. The Sanhedrin, who don't particularly like Peter and uh, John doing their thing outside the temple, and the lame man and so on, and, and they, they're, they're hauled in before the court, and the, the solution, actually, is the boldness and courage of their testimony, on account of which the Sanhedrin release them, because they're afraid of the people. It's like, we don't want to upset the crowds, because right now the crowds seem to like this, the, the effects of this gospel movement. And so then you get to the end of chapter 4, verse 31. Now they all gathered together and they prayed and, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with, word, with all boldness. The th- another one, third one, is uh, ahead of us uh, in chapter 6. We'll look at this in a couple of weeks' time. The, the problem here is the uh, dispute that arises. Disunity within the church. That's another problem you might experience because you've got the, the uh, Hellenic and the 
the Jewish widows who are arguing about the distribution of food. You know, there were famines in the first century in Jerusalem, all over the place, and there's not enough food to go around, and there's a distribution network which isn't working very well, so one group is complaining about the other. And the solution is we need some deacons who are going to sort this mess out, and then you get the problem solved, and then verse 7, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the, feast, the priests became obedient to the faith. You see the different problems? And Acts is like a kind of template for what church life is like. Don't you see these things sometimes? Opposition, a sense of having been abandoned, disunity, and all of them the Spirit of God is overcoming. You've got one later when um, uh, there's a plot to kill Saul and a whole bunch of the brothers aren't sure about Saul anyway because he's, you know, he used to be one who's trying to kill us. And then Paul, Saul, is proclaiming the gospel and then that kind of is all resolved and he escapes from the plot to kill him. You get another growth statement. You've got another one after James is killed and Peter is imprisoned. And what's the solution to that? Well, if the Herod, who's the man who had James put to death, he himself is put to death under the Lord's judgment. Peter is miraculously released from prison. You get another growth statement. You see what happens? You are going to face problems. The only thing I can guarantee, death and taxes are not the only things that are guaranteed. I, we started to see pastoral problems in Granbury, on the day of the first public planning meeting. And I was like, right on schedule. <laughs> now, it's not to make light of it. It's been bitter and painful and hard. But nobody should be surprised, because death and resurrection. And the reason it's structured like this is to make us wise, and also, frankly, it's just 100% pure, solid gold encouragement. If, if you have a faithful church that experiences difficulties, it doesn't mean something's gone wrong. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but I, I guarantee within three to nine months you'll have some unanticipated crisis in Granbury, and we'll probably have one here. I don't know what it is, Donald Rumsfeld, unknown unknowns. Do not be derailed. Do not think, oh my goodness, we've made a mistake. Just think, okay, well, this is where the Spirit's leading us. We've got to find a way of overcoming this. By the Spirit's grace, we will, and the church will continue to grow, as it has done for 2,000 years and counting. So that's the big picture in the book of Acts. Now, you've got one in this passage, which is really intriguing. I want to spend a little bit of time just looking at the particular difficulty that is overcome here, because it is really quite, well, I, I'll say it straight up, it's quite unnerving. The problem in the context of chapter 5 is, of course, what we talked about last time we looked at the book of Acts. It's the Ananias and Sapphira issue. You remember what's happened? Um, at the end of chapter 4, uh, under the pressure of uh, economic privation and, and hardship and even starvation for some people, um, a number of folks were selling property. Barnabas sold a field and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Um, Ananias and Sapphira also sold some property, and claiming to bring it all, they only brought part of the proceeds. And it wasn't the only bringing part, it was the deception and the lying for which they were judged by God. And both of them were put to death. It's really startling really disturbing. Just let me remind you of it. Um, 
uh, end of verse, chapter 5, verse 4, you've not lied to men but to God. And as, as soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And then a few hours later, his wife, Sapphira, comes in. How is it that you've agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Verse 9. Behold, the men who buried your husband are at the door. They'll carry you out as well. And she fell down and died. Now, predictably then, verse 11. Great fear fell upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things because what you've, the problem you've got is actually it's sin within the community and the shock, this is not really the problem but this is how God deals with it, the shock of seeing how the living God deals and in this case particularly with deception. How does the Lord deal with lies with half-truths, with a failure fully to be honest with one another. And it is frightening. And so, you get to verse 12, you get this kind of zoom out, what's happening? Well, many signs and wonders are being regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. We'll come to that in a few minutes' time. And they're all together in Solomon's portico, where they were in chapter 3, None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now this is a puzzle, just look closely at this, and, and notice there seems to be some kind of tension here. Nobody dared to join them, or rather, not quite, none of the rest dared to join them. The people held them in high esteem. And still, it looks like multitudes of believers are being added to their number, verse 14. So how is it you can have verse 13, none of the rest dared to join them, and verse 14, loads and loads of people join them. It seems a bit kind of weird. So most likely it looks that verse 13 is drawing a distinction within the broader population. So whoever the rest are, it might be the rest of the Jewish leadership and those attached to the old covenant way of life, none of them dared to join them. None of them. Because they've just seen what happens. If you try and come to the Lord and you're covering something up, like halfway repentance, jeepers, I don't want that. But nonetheless, the people, which Luke seems to use as a broader term to encompass the population as a whole, they, they held them in high esteem, and, and from that community, apparently, lots of people joined. So what you've got is this perceived barrier to joining the church. Because everybody known now knows, like, if we, join, if we join this community, people might find out the truth about us. If I join this church, eventually, or maybe quite quickly, the spirit will be at work, and they're going to find out what I'm really like. <laughs> Yikes. And, you see, if, if I were upfront and honest about it, then that would be okay because there's no sin that you're ready to repent of that can't be forgiven. But I'm not sure I'm ready to repent of all that yet. I, 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 I think I can keep this hidden. I think I can keep this um, under wraps. I'm just going to go find myself a church somewhere else. Now in Jerusalem, in the first century, there was no church somewhere else. Let me tell you, in Fort Worth in 2023, there are plenty of churches somewhere else. One scholar, a friend of mine, Matthew Sleeman, 
talks about the absence of a casual association with the church. Because in the book of Acts, it becomes obvious that secret unfaithfulness, secret sins will be exposed in the end, maybe quickly, maybe after a period of years. And you can all think of examples. And you know, the tragedy, the tragedy of, and I spoke about this with Ananias and Sapphira, if only they'd said, brothers, we, we, we've sold this land and we, we feel able to, to bring a part of the proceeds to give to the poor, it'd been like, guys, that's wonderful, praise God. If only they'd been honest. Do you believe that there's nothing you can say to me or to any of your pastors about some sin that you're ready to repent of that Jesus can't forgive? Do you believe that? Do you actually trust the gospel? Do you believe, when Pastor Shaw said earlier, your sins are forgiven? Every single sin that you will name as a sin and none of the sins that you will hide from the Lord and try and hide from everybody else. Now, what I'm not saying is we all need to confess everything all the time to everybody. But you, you, you know what I'm, I'm saying? There's the, the way of trying to cling to something which is materially relevant so that you can continue to live in that sin, with that deception. And so everyone's afraid. No, I'm not joining this church. And in the modern age, you don't have to, because the church has become so corrupt, so vacuous, so undemanding, that the very last thing that people expect whenever they rock up at most churches is to be asked any questions. It's like, welcome into membership. No questions asked. People, no, they just expect to be able to rock up and join the club, and actually the pastor should be quite nice to see me, because I'm occupying space, and I might even tithe. Sometimes. As long as by tithe I can sort of change the meaning of the Hebrew of tenth to two percent. And let me just say, this is emphatically not how we do things around here. How, how easy should it be to join Christ Covenant Church in Granbury? How easy should it be to join All Saints in Fort Worth? It should be precisely as easy as it is to follow Jesus. And no easier. There, is, there has never been a soul, and there never will be a soul, whom Jesus will turn away who comes to him on bended knee, repentant, ready to follow him. And there has never been a soul who's had sins forgiven of which they wouldn't repent. And there never will be. I came across um, a practical manifestation of this um, a number of years ago, um, uh, and have come across it many times since. Uh, the, the modern obsession with non-judgmental counselling. Have you come across this? I mean, you, you, you can find secular counsellors and even some churches that offer what they call non-judgmental counselling. I have to tell you, that is one of, most, one of the most idiotic ideas I've ever encountered. <laughs> I was speaking to a young lady just the other day. I said, I, we offer only highly judgmental counselling. The only kind of counselling I'm willing to offer is extremely judgmental. Let me tell you, you need it. Because if you're in the right, you need me to tell you and assure you and reassure you that you're in the right. If you're entitled to a divorce, you need a pastor who will judge 
and tell you that you are, not one who will just smear the blame around all over the place so everybody feels guilty and nobody knows what to do. And if you're in the wrong and you want to follow Jesus, you need somebody to tell you, don't you? Judgment doesn't mean hypocritical criticism. In, in Scripture, actually, judgment has to do with moral evaluation and exposure, truth-telling. The day of judgment is not when God the Father tries to figure out what to do with us all. He's already figured out that. We we're already judged righteous in Christ. What he's going to do is to publicize the grounds of the verdict. It's a day of unveiling when all the secrets of all our hearts will be made known. And what happens in the church, this incidentally is why some people died during the Lord's Supper at the church in Corinth, what happens in the church is a, a foretaste of that judgment. So you're judged righteous in Christ if you repent. And Jesus exposes the unrepented of sins that we really want to hide. It is. Let me tell you how terrifying this is to say. You, I promise you will not find non-judgmental counseling here or at Christ's Covenant in Granbury. If you come for advice and counsel, am I doing the right thing? And if you're right, Pastor Neil, Pastor Shaw, I, we will tell you. And if you're wrong, God help us, we'll tell you. And, and in saying this, I'm exposing myself to the same thing. I'm not above this. It's, why, it's actually one of the reasons why it takes us so long to appoint deacons, not to say elders, goodness gracious, because you've got to, you don't do it hastily. And the, the goal is not to make life unpleasant for anybody. The goal is to make life yeah, possible. Life in all its fullness possible. To protect those in the church who need to be protected. To judge with righteous judgment. In, in the Old Testament, it is no less a sin to call evil good than to call good evil. Both are wrong. And non-judgmental counselling is the stupidest thing in the world. Well, not probably quite the stupidest thing, but it's up there, you know, with Twitter. <laughs> anyway, how much time have we got left? Uh, okay. So briefly. So the kingdom of grows, God grows as we take seriously the the reality of death and resurrection. And, and it may be that you need to go home this afternoon and just confess one more sin and and resolve to, I'm going to leave that behind, and that's great. Remember, he said, your sins are forgiven. Confess it in your heart now. Your sins are forgiven. It's okay. Thank you. Now, how else does it grow? Well, the kingdom of God grows, according to this text, as we display God's grace to the world. And I just want to show you a little bit of this, because it's wonderful. And it has to do with some of the details of the text, including that de detail that you all want me to talk about in verse 15, because what's with the shadow thing? I mean, come on. Really? <laughs> Let's just go back to verse 12, and, and we'll look at verse 15, and I'll show you what's going on here. The key is, as I said, the kingdom of Christ grows as the church displays the grace of God to the world. Let me show you. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they're all together in Solomon's portico. Incidentally, another little geographical note. Um, notice how being together spiritually is correlated with geographical togetherness in Solomon's portico. 
um, Acts has, has got a very heavy geographical overlay to it, and there's tons and tons of research being done by biblical scholars on this, and it's, it, it helps you to read the text, because geographical presence has to do with um, ideological presence, so to speak. Anyway, there signs and wonders. Now, I mentioned this before. You know where the, the vocabulary of signs and wonders comes from in the Bible? It comes from the era of Moses. The phrase occurs a number of times, almost entirely to do with the ministry of Moses in leading his people, God's people, out of slavery, out of idolatry, out of sin, out of bondage in Egypt, into the freedom of life under the rule of God in the promised land. That's what it has to do with. And now, who are the signs and wonders being done by? Well, the new Moses is. That's why the focus is on the apostles. It's not that the apostles are um, sort of ontologically on a higher plane any more than Moses was. Moses was the meekest man in all the earth in his day. And apart from Jesus, nobody meeker than him has arisen. He's just like an ordinary guy. And you see the ordinary guyness of Moses, don't you, at various points. But he's the one chosen by God to lead this people. And so who's the new Moses? Well, it's the apostles. Where do you go if you want freedom? Where do you go if you want to be uh, under the cloud that's overshadowing you? You see where verse 15 comes in? Come to that in a second. Where do you go if you want to be out of Egypt, leave the sin, leave the idolatry behind, and experience freedom? Where do you go if you want to hear the word of God thundering from the mountain, guiding you in wisdom and truth and righteousness? You go to Moses. And now where do you go? You go to the apostles. You go hang out with those clunk of weirdos in the temple and and have the apostles teach you and lead you and disciple you. Because that's where grace is found. So because the apostles in particular and the church as a whole is embodying the grace of God, they're there to show the grace of God to the world and invite the world to come in. And many people were doing so, verse 14. Interesting, it's something to think about both in Granbury and here, How do we orient ourselves appropriately so that we are ministering to one another within the community, but having an eye to the future members of these churches whom we don't yet know? And we mustn't neglect either. There have been mistakes. Pastor Shaw talked about some of this a few weeks ago. There have been mistakes on both sides. You can fall in. There's a ditch on both sides of this road. You can be be all about, like, this is a shopfront evangelistic event, which is wrong, because it's not, it's covenant renewal with the living God, but you could also get it wrong the other way, where we have no concern for the newcomers who've come in and the people who need to be brought into the community of the faithful people of God. So we need, we need to have an eye to both. I don't know how big Grace Covenant in Granbury is going to be in three years' time. i tell you what, this church, by the time next week, <laughs> this is blow your mind when you realise this, after the guys from Granbury have, don't cry, gone, don't cry, you'll start me. Next week, if you look at the demographic, the, the makeup of our congregation here at, at All Saints, the, the, number, the percentage of this congregation that will have been here for more than three years will be 34%. It will be as though the church has tripled in size in three years. We have to have an eye for the new people joining us. Because those new people joining us are pretty soon going to be not new people joining us, they're going to be with us, and we need to be ready to disciple and welcome them, don't we? And then that takes us down to verse 15, and this, wow, what's going on here? So the str- they, they carried out the sick onto the streets, laid them in cots and mattresses, and 
Peter walks by, his shadow might fall on them. Now, okay, what on earth is going on? At one level, it's straightforward. No, it's not straightforward. It's, it's, it's indicative of the point that I highlighted earlier, actually. It's geographic proximity is a proxy for spiritual closeness or ideological closeness. Uh, in the ancient world, the shadow of a person was thought of as the extension of a person. And it may be that the, the how people thought of this was a little bit like reaching out and touching Jesus' garment. Having Peter's shadow fall on them was like a way of them affirming, we want to be a part of this community. And so God chose that miraculous way to have them healed to, to highlight that. But there's probably another thing going on as well, because the verb translated uh, overshadow, well, it's not translated overshadow, it, it means overshadow. His shadow might fall on them. It's literally his shadow might overshadow them, and it's the same word group. It's not very common in the Old Testament scriptures, in the Greek translation of the Bible, but it is used occasionally, and it is used exclusively in relation to the presence of God overshadowing his people. Exodus 40, Moses can't enter the tabernacle because the glory of the Lord overshadowed it. Same thing in Isaiah 51, you've got Psalm 91. It's only used like four times, I think, and it means... It has reference to the presence of God encompassing and enveloping and protecting and leading these people. So, you go to the apostles so they lead you out of slavery in Egypt. And you go to the, the church because in that community, that's where you find the overshadowing presence of the living God. And so, you flip that around, what's the church's job? The church's job is to be that community which shows to the world the grace of God that we've experienced. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you couldn't go into the tabernacle because the glory of God's there. You can come to Moses where the glory of the Lord overshadows you, provided you're willing to repent of your sins. It's interesting. I, I've seen um, remarkable examples of this in the last few years, working alongside Pastor Neil. Um, I've been in... in numerous counselling situations with him, including some in which people have done what they needed to do. They've confessed sins to him. Sometimes they've, they've confessed to Pastor Neil sins that they've committed against him and, and sought his forgiveness. And you know what he says? Some of you have heard him say this. It's one of, it's one of those Pastor Neil one-liners which is going to go with me to my grave if I live to be 120. You know you know, you know what he says? I wish camera do I look at. Where's Pastor Neil? I don't know. I can only give that which I have been given. You heard Pastor Neil say that? I can only give that which I've been given. When people have said, sorry, Pastor Neil, I lied to you. Sorry, Pastor Neil, I gossiped about you. Sorry, Pastor Neil, for, for, I've just been a high-maintenance member of this church. <laughs> I can only give that which I've been given. Thank you, Pastor Neil, for what you've taught me. If I live to be 120, I'll never forget that. Actually, we, we could go even further, couldn't we? We have an obligation to give that which we've been given. Who, who gets a, a lamp and hides it under a bush? Who experiences kindness and tries to keep it all to themselves? Only people who don't know what kindness is. Only people who don't really have a lamp. 
We are those who've been shown grace. And I promise you that if we are those who will faithfully endure whatever trials the Lord sends us, and if we are those who seek to share the grace that we've received with others, the kingdom of Christ will grow among us. You all ready? You're like, no, it's not ready at all. You ready to go, you Granburyites? I spoke to a couple of guys this morning. They're like, no. Oh, well. <laughs> You'll never feel ready. Keep in touch, won't you? Let's pray. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the abundant blessings that we've received and indeed even for those particularly that we see around us. Go with us all our days, leading us in that transparent and honest confession of sin to you and where necessary to one another and to give to others that which we've received from you that your kingdom may grow among us and we pray in Christ's name. Amen.